You are listening to a Fredericksburg Christian Fellowship audio presentation. This morning, as we consider the passage in Matthew 7 about building on a firm foundation, we want to be thinking about the future. What are we building for the future? We're going to take a look at the building and its foundation, and then the test that comes and the result of the test. Go with me for a moment back to the year 1876. Now, to put that in perspective, that was the year of Custer's last stand, 300 U.S. cavalrymen against 5,000 Cheyenne, Lakota, and Arapaho Indians. It was the year of Thomas Edison's patent application for the mimeograph machine, and it was the year that Texas A&M opened for education. But we want to go across the country to a little village in North Carolina in the year 1876. There was a church there that was moved by the mighty hand of God. The Methodists of Swan Quarter were keenly aware of flooding issues from heavy rains and high tides due to storm events. As a result, they sought property on which to build their new church that was less prone to typical flooding. Their efforts to purchase a specific vacant lot were unsuccessful. So the church was built near the heart of town on Oyster Creek Road. That sounds kind of ominous. On September the 19th, 1876, just three days after the dedication of the new church, a vicious storm ravaged North Carolina's coast. As the storm event passed, the village of Swan Quarter was flooded once again. The day after the storm, the still-flooded community began surveying the homes that were damaged or destroyed. In the destruction, something truly astonishing was happening. The Methodist church floated off its foundation and was gingerly sailing down Oyster Creek Road. Residents tried roping the church to tether it from floating off, but the church proved to be too strong. As the church meandered through the waters of the town, it miraculously took a right turn down a different road. It continued for two or three more blocks before changing course and settling neatly in a vacant lot, the same lot that the church had unsuccessfully sought to purchase once before. Needless to say, the land was deeded to the church shortly after its maiden voyage. Well, most of the time when the rains come down and the floods come up, things don't work out so well for believers unless they are founded on a firm foundation. And then when those storm events happen, we know that we're going to be secure in the grace of God and kept by His power. This is what we want to talk about this morning. Now, the message of Jesus' story of the two houses and the flood is essentially the same message that we had last week. And it's a message directed to us that we might not be deceived by ourselves. We, want, we don't want to be those people who listen to the gospel, but do not really put it into practice in our lives. Last week we read the sad commentary of those who thought they were a part of the kingdom of God, but then at the time of judgment found that they were sadly deceived. The two houses and the flood give us the same caution regarding self-deception. What kind of, one kind of person is listening, but he fails to do 
what he heard. We see that even in the Old Testament from the prophet Ezekiel. So they come to you as people do. They sit before you as my people, and they hear your words, but they do not do them. For with their mouth they show much love, but their hearts pursue their own gain. Indeed, you are to them as a very lovely song of one who has a pleasant voice and can play well an instrument, for they hear your words, but they do not do them. Here's the prophet, and it's like he's singing a beautiful song for the people, and they're enjoying what he has to say, but they don't make application of it. Now, Jesus never wasted any words, and he never wasted any word pictures. He has given us three word pictures in this passage. And remember, when this was written by Matthew, there were no verses, there were no chapters. It was just the message that he wrote. Let's take a look at these pictures, uh, two of which we've already studied. In verses 15 through 20, we had the false prophets who can deceive anyone who is superficial in his spiritual understanding. This was the wolf in sheep's clothing, or the grapes that suddenly appeared on the thorn bush, and we may be deceived by appearances unless we're tuned in to the Lord and have the power of His Spirit. You have to watch out. A man or woman might show up among the flock, and they would be very kind and engaging, even enthusiasm, uh, with enthusiasm, but be careful particularly if the man wants to engage in conversation, only the women or the young women, or the lady wants to engage in conversation, only the men or the young men. Now, there are many other signs that we need to look for, but these would be some things we want to be uh, careful as we walk through this Christian life and as a body as well. So, no deception by appearances. The second category of people were those who were calling upon the Lord, and they had good works, but they didn't have true saving faith. Works without faith. These were the false professors who were doing the things that they thought would assure them a place in heaven, but when it was too late, they found out that they had been doing a lot of good things, but it didn't count because they weren't doing it out of a heart of love for Christ. They had wrong values. They had wrong motives. They displayed eagerness and enthusiasm and even a zeal for good works, but they failed to grasp sound biblical doctrine. Now today, we come to the two men and the two houses, and this points out the difference between true salvation and false salvation. The foolish man sought the benefits and blessings of salvation, and he was depending upon his apparent possession of those things. But when the difficult times came, it was proven otherwise. This message from Jesus would be addressed to Christians, those who profess to be Christians, and to church members. At least a dozen times in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus divides people into two categories, the saved and the unsaved. So this must be pretty important. He's telling us a lot about the difference between those who have true salvation and those who do not, but sometimes think they do. Let me remind you that this lesson 
neither this one or any other, is suggesting that we can accomplish salvation by works. That is, that we listen to the Sermon on the Mount, and we do all these things, and somehow we make ourselves Christians. That can never be true from the balance of what we understand in Scripture. Neither is it teaching sinless perfection. That everywhere, at all times, we need to be doing what Jesus said, and then we'll be Christians, and then we'll have the confidence of our salvation. If that were true, there wouldn't be a single Christian in the entire world. So we're not talking about sinless perfection or earning our salvation. But our lesson today has everything to do with works without faith and faith without works. So we want to be very careful that we understand what Jesus is saying and that we can make the right application of it in our lives. We come down to the building that uh, these men are constructing, and we'll look at some similarities between the two houses. In John Bunyan's epic saga, The Pilgrim's Progress, you remember that Pilgrim and Pliable set out from their home, moving down the straight path to the celestial city, but they came to the Slough of Despond. And when they fell into that uh, muck hole, Pliable became very discouraged, and he went back to his home, the city of destruction, and Christian went on along for a while. Now, when they started their journey, they both looked alike. They both had the same heart. They both had the same desires, but then there were some differences along the way. Well, let's take a look at the similarities between our two builders. They both had a desire to build a house where their families could live in comfort and security. True Christians and false professors want the blessings and benefits of Christianity. They both set out to find forgiveness and peace and salvation and the satisfaction of the abundant life. Some will fail and others will succeed. But at the beginning, they both look alike. You couldn't tell the difference by looking at them. Number two, they both resolved to build a house in the same locality. We know that because both houses were hit by the very same storm and the same flooding. True Christians will encounter the same kind of testing as non-Christians. 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though something strange happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you are partakers in Christ's suffering, that when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. This is nothing unusual when the storms come, and we need to be ready for those times. We want to be sure it's not some storm that I created for myself, but even if it is, God is in control of that, and He will use that for my good. Number three, they both liked and designed the same kind of house. Both men desired the benefits of Christianity, good character, good reputation, blessings on earth, and a home in heaven. It looks like they're both on the straight and narrow path, moving on down toward the celestial city. 
They both appeared to be men who possessed the tools and skills with which to construct a house. They attended the same church, I think. They probably went to some of the same brotherhood meetings. They worked on the Christmas pageant together. They even were present at the same revival meeting in their town, and they both prayed to receive Christ. It looks very similar at this point. Number five, both persevered to the completion of their houses. The foolish man didn't commence to build and then just drop out along the way before completion. He went ahead and completed the project. Both houses were finished so far as we know. If you looked at the houses, they would look the same from the roof to the basement. Now, maybe it's like some of the houses we build where one guy's got the porch on this end and the other guy on the other end and the windows are a little different, but it's the very same house, basically. Many persevere in seeking salvation. At some point, they envision that they have found it until they discover too late that they were deficient in, in character and in the works in which they invested their lives. Alas, they did not truly know Christ. And he says, depart from me, I never knew you. Now those are the similarities. What would be the differences between the two men and their houses? Let me say first that the differences are not obvious. You have to examine the situation very carefully. And this is one of those things that the enemy likes to keep hidden, especially from young people. They see folks and they just, they're talking about Jesus and they kind of look alike and everything looks pretty good, but be careful. It's not always like that according to our lesson today. We think it would be easy because we think that the false professor would say, there is no God and the Bible is not the special revelation, it's just another book. And there are no miracle stories and there, are no, there is no resurrection of the dead. But that's not the case. This guy's in church quoting the Apostles' Creed every Sunday. And he thinks he's on the right track and it looks good and it sounds good, but he is building on the sand, on the wrong foundation. So what does that say to us? We've already heard, judge not, that you be not judged, get the beam out of our own eye. But then we have to carefully discern, carefully discern all the organizations, all the programs, all the church, I appreciate it when people call me and ask me, now what about this and what's going on here? Because we want to carefully discern everything about who we are and what we do based firmly on the solid foundation of Christ and His Word. Well, the wise man dug deep to sink his foundation into the bedrock. The foolish man didn't dig at all. Now, it is true that around the Sea of Galilee in the very hot summertime, the sand kind of gets crusted over, and it seems like solid ground. I don't know if that's what the guy was thinking, but he didn't want to do any digging. In the summer of 1985, our family, our entire family, worked at the J.H. Ranch in Northern California. And there was a very interesting elderly gentleman who lived there at the ranch. His name was Mr. Proctor. And Proc was an underwater welder on the Golden Gate Bridge. And he had some very interesting tales to tell about building that bridge way back in the 1930s. 
the south pier of support was located way out from the shore, about 1,100 feet in deep water. Tidal currents were very dangerous. They're coming in and they're going out every day. Divers were able to find an outcropping of bedrock 300 feet wide, 155 feet long, 100 feet down below the twisting current. The problem was that a half million tons of rubble from the serpentine rock, about 15-foot layer on top of the bedrock, had to be removed. So it was blasted and dredged. And then they took a giant caisson, which is like a huge cylinder weighing 8,000 tons, and put that down on the bedrock so that they could pump the seawater out and lay the foundations, the footings of the foundation. But the tidal currents were tossing that thing around like a cork, and it couldn't use that. And then they had to pour a thick concrete cylinder 65 feet deep down to the bedrock. Then they could start the pumping and construct this massive footing that would have to support 43 million pounds of steel, plus the weight of the roadway, plus the weight of traffic, another 9.5 million pounds. Now, you're probably not going to be driving across the Golden Great Bridge as you hear all this, but it's been standing since 1937 because some engineers figured out the load stresses and they went down and they laid a firm foundation. Proper foundations take a lot of time and energy and money that the foolish man just didn't want to expend. Charles Spurgeon gives us a good description of this guy who built his house on the sand. He's talking to the other fellow. He says, ah, your toil is needless. You have nothing to show for it. See how quickly my walls have risen, and yet I don't slave as you do. I take things easy. I never bore myself nor the rocks, and yet you see how my house springs up and how neat it looks. Your old-fashioned ways are absurd. You dig and hammer away down below there as if you meant to pierce the center of the earth. Why not use your common sense and go ahead as I do? Then he comments on that. The estate is fair. Why worry about the title deeds? The feast is rich. Why tarry for the wedding garments? If doubt should arise, the carnally secure man ascribes it to Satan and puts it aside, whereas it's his own conscience and the warning voice of heaven that bid him take heed and be not deceived. The prayer for the Lord to search and try the hearts and his reins he never sincerely offers. Such a man does not like self-examination, and he cannot endure to be told that there must be fruits meet for repentance. He likes to take things at guesswork comes to rash conclusions, shuts his eye to disagreeable facts. He dreams that he's rich and increased in goods, whereas he is naked and poor and miserable. Alas, what a waking will be his. His more serious companion aroused at the same time is, on the other hand, far more diligent and self-distrustful. And when he prays, his heart groans before the Lord, yet he fears he does not pray aright and never rises from his knees contented with himself. He is not quite so soon satisfied about the reality of his faith as the other. Perhaps, he says, after all, it's not the faith of God's elect. He examines himself, whether he be in the faith. He trembles lest he should have the form of godliness without the power. He is afraid of shams and counterfeits and is for buying gold tried in the fire. My repentance, saith he, 
Am I sure it is a real loathing of sin as sin? Or did I only shed a tear or two under the excitement of a revival service? Am I sure that my nature is renewed by the Holy Ghost? Or is it mere reformation? Well, that goes on and on. Some pretty good words as a challenge for us to be certain that our calling and election is sure. The foolish man was impatient and in a hurry to get what he wanted with a less effort. Shortcuts and quick results were his goal. This man doesn't need the disciplines of the farmer, the athlete, and the soldier that we read about in Second Timothy. All you have to do is believe. This man knows that belief or trust is all you have to do, but the wise man knows that belief or trust in the Lord is all that's necessary for justification, but then begins the process of sanctification. And as we have noted, that is a long and strenuous labor. And it includes running, wrestling, fighting, striving, and finishing the race, as Paul tells us with a lot of action verbs. The wise man knows that God works progressively over time, and he's willing to wait for him. He doesn't get in a hurry to want to have everything right now. Isaiah 28, 16. Therefore, says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. Now then we get the same thing in the New Testament. James 5, 7 and 8. Be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and latter rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Don't get in a hurry, young people. Take time to build a firm foundation whatever it takes. I know we've got education and we've got jobs and we've got all kinds of things calling to us, but build that firm biblical foundation, even as we were talking about in the first light hour. The foolish man didn't consider it necessary to consult with an engineer, an architect, or gather any reliable information on sound construction methods. He wanted a house, not rules and regulations, He didn't want to listen to instruction and warnings. He sees no need for that because at the center of his life, he doesn't have time for these things. At the center of his life is what he likes and what he doesn't like, mostly self. And so who wants all the rules and regulations for life? This person does not want to be told about how to have a devotion time. He doesn't even want to be told that he ought to have a devotion time. Those things are old-fashioned. Now, he may study the mechanics of theology, but he neglects the message of the Bible. His life may appear to be what, what looks like a rapid spiritual growth without application of the means of grace. Here's somebody over here struggling and memorizing Scripture and studying the Bible, and this guy looks like just a rising star, but be careful. Do you remember Jonah's gourd vine? It came up one day and it withered the next. We want to build on the firm foundation. It may be many days before the storm comes, 
but the storm will test our true beliefs and what's in our heart. The foolish man never stopped to think about what he was doing, to stop to think through what he was doing and consider the end result. He never thought about heavy rain or melted snow that might be coming down from the mountains there. He wouldn't have listened if you had warned him. Here is Dr. DeMartin Lloyd-Jones, and he comments on this guy. In a spiritual sense, he's not interested in learning from church history. He's not interested in what the Bible has to say. He wants to do something, and he believes it can be done in his way, and away he goes to do it. He doesn't consult plans or specifications. He does not try to look to the future and envision certain tests that must inevitably come upon the house that is being built. Well, the foolish man never had any kind of inspection that would have revealed the danger. He doesn't care about accountability or small study groups or going to some prayer meeting or anyone looking over his shoulder asking him, why are you doing that? And why don't you do this instead? He doesn't care for those kind of things. He doesn't consult with experienced builders. He reads books, but not about building something that would entertain him. He doesn't look too much to the Bible except on Sunday morning, maybe in church. His one great desire, though, is to build a house that would be the right thing for himself and his family. Now, the wise man is looking on down the road, and he's looking at the experience of others, and he's listening to testimony, and he's got some other guys who are willing to say, hey, man, you need to shore that up a little bit. I think you might be kind of weak. You haven't been studying the Bible lately? You haven't been doing your Scripture memory? Or whatever it might be. Uh, we're not saying that that's something you have to do to attain salvation, but it's pretty good in the process of sanctification. Now, in the Scripture, the term house relates to several different things. It could relate to your family. Joshua says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It could relate to your Christian character. In 1 Peter 2, 5, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Those two are the ones that we want to focus on, particularly Christian character. Because whatever your Christian character is, that's going to spill over on the character of the family, especially if you're the dad in that family or the mom, or the older brother, or anyone that's being looked to for leadership. There is another use of the word house in the Bible. 2 Corinthians 5.1, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. It's my body. And every day older that I grow, I look more forward to that eternal building that is made waiting for me in heaven. Well, the foundation. <clears throat> What's the only difference in the text between the two houses? It is the foundation. Why worry about that? You can't even see it. It's underground, out of sight, out of mind. Who's going to come in here with a shovel digging down to see what the foundation looks like? No one will know that the house rests on the sand instead of on the rock. 
No one will know, at least until the storms come. And then you can tell the difference, but by then it's too late to remedy the situation. Now, is that what Jesus is telling us in these short verses? I don't think it is. I think He's telling us, you better take a look at the foundation right now. Because when that time comes, it's too late to do anything about the foundation. Now, if you're still alive and breathing, you can do something about the foundation. Maybe you had a poor foundation when you were a child, but you can go back and bring in some concrete and shore that thing up. If you're a young person, you've got to really be listening up carefully because you're building your foundation right now. And it's going to be very important, the kind of foundation that you build. We're going to need the discernment of the Holy Spirit to safeguard ourselves against the consequences of false faith while there's still time to do something about it. We can do something about it today. And if we take a look at what he's saying, we see that there will be a time coming when we cannot do anything about it. So how can you know if your house is built on the rock? And what is the difference there between the two houses? The foundation. Now, last Sunday... We looked at the distinguishing traits of Christian character. And if we wanted to condense those things down, let me just give you four. We talked about them in detail. But once again, a biblical attitude towards sin. Do you hate sin? Do you mourn over sin? Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Not somebody going around as a sad person, but somebody who is sorrowful over their sin. A broken and contrite heart the Lord will not despise. You will rejoice to be forgiven. So out of the morning comes great joy. True repentance and genuine faith. This is is not intellectual faith or temporary faith. You remember one Sunday we had a parachute up here. And we said, hey, it looks like a parachute. I believe it's a parachute. But it doesn't save you at that point. You've got to put it on and jump out the door of the plane. You see, intellectual faith says, Lord, Lord, but then does not do what he says. Temporary faith says exactly the same thing. A love for the divine truth of Scripture and a commitment to follow it. Spurgeon says it's one thing to have a creed, it's quite another thing to have the truth graven upon the tables of your heart. Do you really love the Scripture? Or do you say, oh, my daily Bible reading, I've got to be sure that I get it done. Well, now sometimes the Scripture is kind of like dry granola, but you know that it's good for you, so we continue with it. And the last one, personal holiness. There may be many others, but we've condensed it to this list. How can a person believe that he's saved if he's living in sin and enjoying it? And if he's living according to the values of the world and enjoying that? Continually taking in the worldview that's given through the world. I'll guarantee you're going to get the world, the world's worldview through Hollywood and other things that are out there. Well, the foolish man chooses what he likes. The wise man chooses that which the Scripture gives. The foolish man loves the love of God, but not the justice. He loves a gracious and forgiving God, 
but not a holy and righteous God. Those kind of things would be repulsive to him because they're so old-fashioned. It sounds like the Old Testament, a God of wrath. But Jesus, a kind and loving God, hey, they're the same God. God is one. Now, we read these verses, but let's skip right down to the uh, end of this, verse 9 and verse 10. But he that liketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Well, the question is, was I truly purged from my old sins? I think I was purged from my old sins, but then did my lifestyle testify to the fact that my heart was cleansed? And in verse 10, Wherefore, the rather brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. Now, I'm not talking about earning my election. I can't do that. But if I'm called to Christ and I'm serving Him, there are some things that are going to flow out of my life. And as I look at my life, I can see, is the evidence there? Are these things flowing forth from my life? It seems like we've said this a good bit, but this is what Jesus is telling us here in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, we were instructed earlier to get the beam out of our eyes so that we could see to examine others. Sometimes when we see other people who are stumbling badly in their Christian life, sometimes we hear that and, oh, my, my. And that makes us feel a little better because we're still coming to church and still doing the things we think we ought to do. But the Holy Spirit is looking much deeper than that. King David stumbled, and yet he had a heart that was broken and contrite when God confronted him with his sin. I have sins. Others have sins. What's my heart like when God reveals that sin to me? It's foolish to compare different houses. Why? Well, the Bible says it's not wise when we compare ourselves among among ourselves. But if we're comparing houses, what's the problem according to the text? You can't see the foundation. All you can see is just what's up above to be seen. And there may be some beautiful flowers and decoration and the paint is just right, but it's the foundation that the Lord is looking at. So we want to be sure that things are right with ourselves before the Lord in the foundation. Hey, what about all the good works in this person's life? We saw last week that they did many wondrous works and they did them in the name of Christ. Good works won't get it because Christ said, Depart from me, you are workers of iniquity. Good works are good, and you might get the Man of the Year award in your community, and everybody would look up to you, and that's pretty good. But be very careful. What are the works for foundation? Uh, The the works that will count for a foundation. We've got to be based not on works, but on one work, and that is the work of Christ. And that's the bedrock. And the verse is 1 Corinthians 3, 9 through 11. We are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can be laid than that which is laid, which is Christ and His work. Not my work, but His work. And out of His work in my life will flow good works.
2 Timothy 2.19, Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his, let every one that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Well, those verses are very clear. It's Christ and then it's the words which he is speaking. So the test is coming and then we see the result. What tests the structural integrity of my character and your character that we have built into our lives? Test of our faith comes through suffering, the trial of our faith. And that might be a number of things, affliction, suffering, persecution, opposition, testing. You want to know one of the toughest trials? It'll be the terrible temptations that come to get us on a trend toward worldliness in our lives. It looks so good, and it just calls to my natural inclinations. But that is a big temptation. 1 Peter 1, verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice. What? I'm rejoicing in my affliction? Yes, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, when Jesus was speaking this sermon about the rains and the winds and the flood beating on the two houses, we see that the wise man's house was beat upon, prospipto. It means to be beat upon with great force. It was beat upon heavily, but it stood. But the foolish man's house was beat upon, proscopto. And that means to strike at, to surge against, to trip up, or to stumble against. The rains came down, the floods came up, the floods carried away all the sand, and all the wind had to do was just tip that tottering structure and it fell away. That's a tough thing. Hey, why do you think half of that house is left when the floods came? It's to show us what can happen to give us the perspective of what happens to your building when the floods come along and you're not built upon the rock. By the way, who sends the rains and the floods and the trials and all of those kinds of things? It's God. Psalm 42, 7. Deep calls to deep at the sound of thy waterfalls. All thy breakers and thy waves have rolled over me. Jonah said the very same thing when he was in the stomach of the fish that swallowed him. It was God's breakers that rolled over him. Now sometimes God allows the enemy to do some things, as he did with Job, but God is in control of everything. Maybe we could say that the rains represent trials from heaven. God sends direct. Maybe the uh, floods would represent trials from earth. Just the natural things that happen down here. Fire comes through and burns your house down. God's in control of that. Maybe the winds represent those mysterious trials in life. We don't know where they came from. Something happens and we say, where did that come from? I never expected that to happen. But God knew that it would happen before the foundation of the earth. And He's preparing us through the foundation that we're building in our lives 
for the challenges that may come in the future. And it's comforting to know the many verses, like Psalm 107.29, He maketh the storm a calm, so that the waves thereof are still. What happened to the two houses? The man whose house was built upon the rock withstood the storm. Troubles came one after another, but he was not swept away. The foolish man, on the other hand, built his house upon the sand and it collapsed whenever the floods came with a great crash. Not even the flood of death can take away your foundation if you're built upon the rock. What kept the house built on the rock from falling? But see, a lot of people say, hey, I can build on the rock. I built on the rock. Look at me. Well, there's something we better remember. We are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. If you are building on the rock, that's God's grace. You lived in a day and time where you could hear the gospel, where you had the motivation that God gave through grace to be able to make application of those things. What's the greatest danger to young builders? Have any young builders in here? 10 years old, 12 years old, 18 years old, 25 years old? It's to neglect foundation work. Notice that the time for examination is already passed when the building is built. Now's the time to check your foundation. If you lose a battle, you can fight again. If your business fails and you go bankrupt, you can start a new business and earn a fortune. If you get sick, you can get well and go again. But if you lose your soul, it's irretrievable. Once it's lost, it's lost forever. And there's no second chance. Make no mistake about building on the firm foundation. All you have to do is receive what God has already done for you by grace. See, you don't have to walk out of the church this morning thinking, now let's see, uh, am I building on the firm foundation? Uh, Am I not on the foundation at all? Am I not even saved? Because all you have to do to have the salvation of Christ is just to receive what Christ has already done for you through the atonement of his, the atonement on the cross of Calvary. God's grace is a gift in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It's accessed by faith in Romans 5, 2. It is abundant grace in 1 Timothy 1, 14. It is sufficient in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. It is freely offered in Romans 3.24. It includes everlasting consolation and good hope through grace in 2 Thessalonians 2.16. And it is a great source of help in time of need, Hebrews 4.16. But God's grace can be received in vain, 2 Corinthians 6, 1. And that's what we want to guard against. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank You that You have given us everything we need to equip us for life and godliness. We could never live this life in the power of the flesh. And Lord, sometimes as we even think about it in the power of the Spirit, we get discouraged. 
But we thank you for your love for us, for your kindness, for your forgiveness when we sin. And we thank you that we can get up when we have stumbled and get back on the trail and move on down the path with your grace toward the celestial city. Lord, we thank you for these warnings. I pray that we might heed the warnings even now in our lives. I pray for the young people in this congregation. Lord, there are so many voices today calling to young people. And often, most of the time, probably the voices of the world call the loudest. I pray that they might carefully examine the life that they're living, the way that they invest their time, the values of their hearts, the things that they really love. And Lord, if there are cracks in the foundation, I pray that they might be shored up. And then I pray for us who are building on a foundation that might have been somewhat weak to begin with a long time ago. But I thank you that through your grace, we have seen the truth and you've enabled us to respond to it. And we have set about to shore up the foundation. Lord, we want this church to be founded upon a firm foundation. And we can remember the cold and rainy day when the foundations for this building were being poured. And it was the perfect weather for that. And the foundation was strong according to those who would know. But now we're thinking about the foundation of the living church. And Lord, we want it to be a firm foundation. We thank you that that is possible. Help us to always be examining ourselves, to be examining each other, not in the light of judgment, but in discernment. And then, Lord, we pray that we might be accountable to one another. So if there is a misstep, if there is a weak spot, uh, we, that might be revealed to us by someone who would love and care for us. Thank you for the way that you have established the body of Christ. Lord, I pray if there's someone here today who has doubt about his or her eternal salvation, that they might come to you acknowledging that they are a sinner, asking forgiveness for sin, asking you to take away the guilt of that blemished record and take their lives and make them the people that you would have them to be. And Lord, we would all rejoice together in what you have done for us. And we ask these things in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. You have been listening to a Fredericksburg Christian Fellowship audio presentation.